Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with the China Project. Subscribe to Access from the China Project to get access access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations. To its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing, it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Returning this week as co-host is Di Yumi, also known as Jeremy Goldcorn. Who has rebounded quickly from his initial disappointment after failing to secure the Nashville City Council endorsement for state legislature, where he was hoping to replace the ousted Justin Jones as the representative of District 52. Unfortunately, Nashville City Council voted unanimously to send Mr. Jones back instead. And Jeremy, really sorry about that, and、uh, better luck next time. And, and please know that I really admire the way that you can just pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and join me here on the podcast. Uh, but for now, Jeremy, would you greet the people? <laughs> Thanks very much. I mean, you know, until last week, Nashville was kind of slightly famous for country music, and、uh, since last week, we're famous for mass shootings and for、uh, being the capital of a state that wants to send us back to the Confederacy. <laughs> but anyway,、um, enough of that. I live in it. I'm just going to go ahead and introduce our guest for the week. I imagine that Mike Chinoy is somebody known to all of our listeners. Mike had a 24-year career as a foreign correspondent for CNN, and served as、uh, the first bureau chief in Beijing. I myself first saw him on TV sometime during or after the first Gulf War, 1990 to 1991, when South Africa's previously highly censored state TV station started broadcasting the live CNN feed. Uh, from Iraq,、uh, and、uh, more and more CNN footage followed.、Um, and I met Mike more than a decade ago in Beijing when he was working on the project we're about to talk about. Mike has lived much of his life in East Asia and won basically every TV news award that's out there—the Emmy, the Dupont, the Peabody—and he is now a non-resident senior fellow at the U.S. China Institute at the University of Southern California. Yeah, and in addition to having mentored my beloved sister Mimi back in the '90s when she was at CNN, Mike is the creator of an amazing documentary series and its accompanying book, which has only recently published,、uh, called "Assignment China: An Oral History of American Journalists in the People's Republic." I urge you all to watch the series, which you can find on YouTube,、uh, which was produced with、uh, Clay Dubey,、uh, and read the book, which I think just you know brings it right up to the very, very near present. It's just An astonishingly rich, admirably self-aware piece of, I used to call it meta journalism.、Uh, it's a fantastic recounting of major historical events in recent Chinese history、uh, by the people who reported them. And it's going to be, I think, for years and years to come, an extremely valuable resource for students who want to understand not only many of these major events that shaped China over the last, you know, seven plus decades, but also to glean insight into. How those events were covered and how that coverage in turn shaped events. Mike Chinoy, welcome to Seneca. It's great to be here with two very old friends. Yeah, fantastic. 
Mike, perhaps you could first talk about the genesis of the whole project. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I remember talking to you about it. it. Must have been maybe 15 years ago in my apartment in Qijiayuan in Beijing. So I know it's been a long time in the making. How did you get the idea to undertake something as ambitious as this, involving so many hundreds of interviews? And what did you set out to accomplish? We started this project uh, at the U.S. China Institute at the University of Southern California, uh, I think in late 2008. We didn't initially have as ambitious a plan as it turned out to be. But the premise underlying what we tried to do in the 12 documentary films and also in the book is pretty similar. And that is that basically most Americans uh, know what they know about China from what they have read or seen or heard in the media. Moreover, given the cloud of American media organizations like the New York Times, CNN, and the other broadcast networks, the wire services, American media coverage has had a kind of disproportionate impact on shaping perceptions of China all around the world. And yet, as anybody who's been around journalists knows, most people don't really have a sense of how the news is reported and the process by which journalists go out and cover the news, where they go, who they talk to, how they decide what to write up, how they transmit it, what their interactions are with the Chinese authorities, the people they're trying to cover, their bosses, the American government, the impact of technological changes on the way in which news is gathered. All of that has a huge impact in shaping the final project, but people don't have any idea what that is like. So we began this project by interviewing people who had sort of opened the first U.S. news bureaus in, in China in 1989, and as we in, in, 19, in 1979 after normalization, and as we continued, it just became clear there are so many interesting stories. We just carried on and carried on, and in the end, uh, we did 12 episodes, which started with people who, at the time we, we interviewed them, they were elderly, but they were still around, who'd covered the Chinese Civil War in the in late 1940s. Um, people like uh, Roy Rowan, who was the right. Life magazine in Shang, uh, correspondent in Shanghai when, when the Red Army was about to march in, or Seymour Topping, uh, who covered the Chinese Civil War for the Associated Press and was in Nanjing when the Red Army took the city, people like that. And it ended up going up through about 2015. The final episode of the series was based on interviews with David Barboza and Michael Forsyth about their groundbreaking investigative journalism about the, the dubious relatives of uh, Xi Jinping and Wen Jiabao and all the millions they'd accumulated in questionable and largely hidden businesses. But as happens when you do a film, a great deal ends up on the cutting room floor. And mm -hmm. so I thought it would be interesting to try and do a book version both to include a lot of material that wasn't in the film series and also to make it accessible in a book form because I think for anybody who's interested in China or in journalism, how reporters work is be a useful tool for journalism education, for China studies, and for anybody who's curious about the life of correspondence. Uh, and so I then did uh, nearly two dozen additional interviews that effectively bring the story up to date. And it is basically... With the old saying is journalists write the first rough draft of history. The idea here is to allow the people to, to have the people who wrote that first draft over multiple decades tell us what it was like to do so. And I think in doing that, you get a much better sense of how journalists work and how 
the China stories that have impacted so many people in so many places for so long were actually uh, assembled by the people who assembled them. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I wanted to give our listeners just a sense of how the documentary series relates to the book. Um, the last seven chapters of the book cover topics. And so after the documentary called Follow the Money, and there's a corresponding chapter in the book, uh, which is about, like you said, uh, David Barbosa and Mike Forsyth and, and uh, people like that who were working on ferreting out the nefarious you know, financial dealings of China's very senior party elite. But the last seven chapters of the book cover topics that, that the book just doesn't. Uh, and, you know, with some exception, there's there's pretty good overlap when it comes to everything before. Like you said, there's stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor that you, you reintroduced into the book. Um, so for somebody who's neither read nor watched it, what would you recommend when it comes to that first 370 pages or so? Uh, would would you say watch the series first, read the text first? I think it just depends. Um, if you like watching videos, what's the, what the films have that the book obviously doesn't is you can hear the people's voices. You can right. see what they look like and you can see images of the events that, that they covered. So if, uh, if you're... For example, there's an episode on the, the Tiananmen Square. That, we'll be talking a lot about that one. Yeah. So in the film and the book, you hear from the ca- the photographer who took the famous photograph of the man in front of the tank about his experiences at uh, taking that picture, and as well as the, the the CNN cameraman who took the video of it. In the film, obviously, you can see the video, and it's interesting to sort of hear the person who took the video talking about how they did it, how they framed up the shot, what was going on around them, and so on. So they're, I think they're both equally valuable. It just depends on people's preferences. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I suppose the obvious question is, were all of the interviews that are in the book's last seven chapters, you know, Surveillance State and Emperor for Life and, you know, the Xinjiang chapters, uh, the epidemic, uh, the expulsion, all that, is were all those videotaped and, and can we expect no getting... no unfortunately oh, for a man. variety of reasons the video the the video part of it ends in 2015 so ah. these were just interviews that i conducted for purposes of of the book we simply didn't have the, the doing a film is expensive this costs yeah. a lot of money uh to do to do all the interviews and to get all the archival footage and so on um, so these were just re- research interviews for purposes of putting them in the book. I, I, I wish they, I wish we could do a half dozen more episodes, but it wasn't possible. And on that uh, subject, just how many interviews did you conduct in total, including the uh, the ones that just made it into the book, and how many people? I would say there's about 125 or 130 interviews. Wow. There are plenty of people I wished I had been able to interview, but just because of time constraints and logistical constraints and uh, the original draft of the book I had to when I presented the manuscript to Columbia University Press I had to cut about 60,000 words as is oh no uh, what did you cut how did you select well, it, the topics I, for the it, book it was just it was very it, it was just very painful but you just you know the editors made a valid point that very few people were going to buy a 750 page book about journalists in China and so we had to cut it down it ended up still being 500 pages but my point is that what, what I think we do have is a fairly representative cross-section. And we don't have everybody, as I say, there are people I wish we'd been able to get. Um, but you have for each of the sort of periods that, that essentially you, there's the Civil War, there's the, the two and a half, three decades of China watching, mostly based out of Hong Kong. There's the opening up, the sort of early post-normalization coverage. 
Tiananmen, the rise of China, the last half dozen years, we have, I think, a pretty representative cross-section of people from uh, newspapers, magazines, wire services, radio, television, even with Mega Rajagopal and BuzzFeed News, a purely online publication. So I think it's a reasonably fair cross-section of people, although it's not as complete as, as I would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the events that I thought might have maybe merited more coverage uh, weren't, I mean, it turns out discussed all that much. I mean, something that comes to mind was the U.S. bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade in May of 1999. A favorite topic of yours, Kaiser. One well, yeah, I mean, knows. I mean, it, it was it, it changed my life, obviously. <laughs> but you know, I think it was it was pretty impactful for you too, right, Jeremy? Um, not really. I was a South African citizen, and oh, okay, I wore right, a T-shirt right. with a, my national flag on when uh-huh. I was walking around Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, no, there, there are other events that I think. No, um, I'm kidding. I, I, yeah. I'm facetious, but yeah, it was an important event. Sure. There, there were other events that you covered, though, Mike. That that. It, it's the angle seems to be more on the media than on the event itself, which is is in the spirit of the book. But something like the Lhasa riots in two thousand eight, in March of two thousand eight, uh, right. which struck me was um, much more in in the book about the coverage or the reaction to media coverage, uh, the the nationalist backlash and the creation of anti CNN dot com, you know. Um, right rather than the events themselves. W- was this a deliberate choice to focus on how reporters experienced? Yeah. Yes, yes. This is, this is not a history of modern China. Right, there right, are right. plenty of others. Um, this is the journalists who covered these events talking about how they covered. And the focus is really on how they covered them and how, what their experiences were right. like. And, and the, the, the text that I wrote that goes along with the interviews is essentially to give a kind of basic background and and context uh, so that the 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 reader has an idea of, of what is going on but this is in no way an attempt to uh, depict this sort of comprehensive retelling of what happened in the Lhasa riots in 2008 um, or in the uh, the Lhasa riots of uh, 1987 right. which happened right after I moved to Beijing to open the CNN Bureau um, but it's the experiences of the journalists, and and it it, it, it so so you're not going to get the complete history of China in the last eighty years in this book. But you what you do get is a kind of a different lens to look at these events, which is the 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 lens of the the perspective of the people who were there. And you know, on the, I was just uh, on the, on the Bel- the Belgrade bombing. We 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 do in fact have a a, a, a couple of pages on that, and and. Uh, with, with, with uh, a couple of journalists talking about their own experiences being targeted, uh, particularly right. in these rather angry protests outside the U.S. embassy. But you have, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, if you want to write a two thousand page book with, it's a yeah. different sort of thing. But but the, but this is designed to essentially pick out what seemed to me to be the most interesting developments and the major news developments that. The journalists had something interesting to say about. I don't, as I say, I don't make any claims that this is a sweeping, comprehensive everything you ever wanted to know about China from 1945 to the present day. But it does, I think, give you a pretty good snapshot of what it was like if you were uh, the New York Times correspondent in Beijing and the Belgrade embassy is bombed and you have to go out to the U.S. embassy and try and report what people who are trying to beat you up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As one example. Uh, and 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 there are others. So you just, it's just 
hard. You have to make trade-offs, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think it very much succeeds in, in what it sets up. It, it is a very comprehensive history of the first drafts of history. Right. Yes, <laughs> I think that's a fair. It's a Harry Condom history of the people who wrote the first draft of history. Right, right, right. right, right. So what I guess I'm really most interested in is what you learned after shepherding this massive project through to you know to fruition. What your big lessons are as as you step back and you look at the endeavor of con- covering this country that is just so fast changing, so complex, so large, and and so unfamiliar to the audiences back home in America. Yeah. You focus on you know actually it's exclusively uh. uh Journalists who work for American media organizations. So there's some non-Americans in, like Chris Buckley, but um, he works for an American media outlet. Just so that we're clear, this is not just all English language media. This is specifically American. Anyway, what what I mean, we will definitely zoom in in this course of this next hour and, and look at some of the trees, especially since some of them are just so consequential, like you know, Yan and Men. Uh, but let's talk about the forest first, which is what. This book does such a fantastic job on. So, are there are there contours to this whole period that kind of reveal themselves to you? Uh, contours in the coverage of this period that reveal themselves to you only after you start to step back and, and look at it in aggregate. Any any new thoughts on maybe what some of the important inflection points yeah. were, or yeah, that that sort of thing. Well, there there are a couple of things. I guess you know. One big theme that runs through the whole whole book is that really from the beginning, there has this been this kind of constant battle between the American press trying to penetrate beyond the limits set by the Chinese Communist Party in terms of information and access, and the party's equally determined efforts to control the narrative about China. And that's a tension that has been there from the very beginning. It has ebbed and flowed. There have been periods when, because I think the treatment of the American press has been a a kind of a very useful barometer in terms of the broader relationship and relations have been better. There's been greater press access and better treatment of journalists and relations have been, have deteriorated. There's been worse. So one central theme is that that battle has been never ending and continues to this day. A second thing is that in the course of doing all these interviews, I went back and looked at a lot of coverage over the years. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's quite fun to sort of go back and dig up articles from, you know, the late 40s or the early 60s or, you know, the Cultural Revolution or Tiananmen and so on, and and look them over and look over broadcast and so on. And what, what was striking to me is the sense I came away with is Given all of the obstacles that the press have faced in terms of limits on access, restrictions on where they could go, who they could talk to, the pressures they faced, the political pressures at various points coming from from Washington and their head offices, especially during the heyday of the Cold War, the way the the Chinese Communist Party has always sought to manipulate events uh, and so on. What What's striking to me was that for all of the things that the journalists got wrong, on balance, particularly in terms of sort of the power struggle, elite politics side, it's it's striking to me how much you know they got proportionally more right than wrong. I mean, if you mm. go back and read the coverage from you know the the Cultural Revolution, for example, or the run up to and the period 
during and right after the death of Mao and so on. The broad brush strokes of kind of how how the political scene was, de- political struggles were depicted, were were surprisingly accurate. Yeah, considering how little access. Considering yeah. how little access, and so the you know the the clues. I mean, there's a wonderful anecdote from from Henry Bradshaw, uh, who worked for the what now defunct Washington Star and whose son is Keith Bradshaw, who's right. currently in China for the New York Times. And Henry Bradshaw talks about sitting in Hong Kong in 1971, reading uh, some Xinhua News Agency report about Chinese delegation going to Hanoi. And uh, the first, there's a welcoming banquet and Xinhua says that the guests all raised a toast to Chairman Mao and his uh, a close comrade at arms, Marshal Lin Biao. And then about a week later, there's another banquet. <laughs> and uh, the Xinhua report says the guests raise their glasses in a toast to Chairman Mao, full stop. Right. Bradshaw talks about a light bulb went off in his head. Something's happened to Lin Biao. And that was the week that Lin Biao's yep. supposed attempted coup happened. Then he fled and his plane crashed and he died. So that kind of detective work, despite the many things that, that folks got wrong and, uh, um, the bro- on the broad picture, I think they got it right more than wrong. Although I would just say today, in reflecting how much things have changed in China, I think that we know so little about the very, very elite dynamics that I'm not sure we won't know for a few years whether people are getting it right or wrong now because it's so much more closed in some ways than it's almost ever been. But over the decades, I think journalists, I, w- I was surprised to discover that they seem to get a lot more right than they got wrong. Do we have a father, Laszlo Ladani, today, uh, you know, the Hungarian Jesuit who was, uh, you know, the doyen of the Hong Kong-based China watchers back then? Do we have somebody like that today who can interpret the, you know... I, 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 I'm waiting. I, I think history will be the judge. I, I wish we did. Ladani, I, re- I remember him from my early years oh, in wow. Hong Kong. I, I, I was too young to realize I should have spent a lot more time at his feet learning from him. But I do remember meeting him and talking to him, and he was this legendary figure. And he just perfected the art of perusing the official Chinese press and transcripts of radio broadcasts and learning to figure out what the real meaning is of how they phrase things. And I think people are having to dust off a lot of those skills today because so much of the coverage now as being done outside China in the wake of the, the expulsions of nearly two dozen journalists in 2020 and the limitations on, I mean, the press corps has really been decimated from, from what it was. And those who are there have a very rough time getting around and seeing stuff. So, so it's a big challenge. So Mike, just now you, you, you talked about how uh, there's a relationship between the way that that the journalists are treated and the, the coverage of China, you know, the, how positive or how negative it is. Do you think that's causal, and do you think it goes in both directions? There's some sort of cycle. I, I I don't know. I mean, and I'm not sure. I would say. I mean, I'm not sure it's so much positive or negative as, as much as access and non-access. But okay, yeah, um, no, yeah You know, fair. in 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 a, a, essentially, almost no journals were allowed to go until the Nixon trip, and then between the Nixon trip and normalization, a small group of journals were given greater. Access, for example, in 1973, uh, NBC, ABC, and CBS were all given permission to send teams to China for a couple of months to do uh, documentaries, and 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 uh, uh, the booking has very interesting reminiscences from the people who worked on the CBS documentary and the uh, the ABC documentary. 
But it was only after normalization that bureaus were allowed, and it was sort of in the 90s and early 2000s that the headcount for the bureaus really began to expand as the Chinese economy took off and as the U.S.-China relationship kind of evened out and there was this huge influx of American investment and in the run-up to the Olympics. But the Chinese have always, the Chinese authorities have always used giving blue cards, the Ji Zhejiang, the press cards, as a tool to, you know, when the relationship was better, they were more willing to do that. And in fact, after the expulsions of 2020, that has been getting journalists visas has been one of the issues on the agenda. And quietly, a few more visas have been granted in the last year or 18 months. And my impression is that had Secretary of State Blinken gone to China on the trip that was aborted by the balloon episode, (laughs) that getting some additional journalist visas was an item on the agenda. It's kind of an easy give for the Chinese and they can sort of do it as part of the the diplomatic dance. But in terms of whether it affects the the coverage, I think that depends, frankly, on what's going on. The coverage is going to be more positive when positive things are happening. Um, on a related question, one of the fascinating stories that uh, you mentioned in your talk that I attended at Vanderbilt University recently was the amazing coincidence of CNN being given permission to bring in and set up satellite gear to transmit a live feed from Beijing, from the Tiananmen rostrum itself to cover the visit of Gorbachev to Beijing in May 1989. Of course, the Communist Party had not counted on there being enormous student demonstrations on the square that just grew in size from the first CNN broadcast on, I believe, April the 17th. And uh, John Sheehan of CBS talked about how they had 57 people from outside of China because of the visas that had been given for the Gorbachev visit. So the question is, did the contingency, the, the random chance, end up making the Tiananmen protests and the crackdown simply much more impactful and enduring, at least in the American mind, than they may otherwise have been? I think there's no question that it was an accident of history that made the Tiananmen crackdown the lead story around the world in everybody's living room. A year before, the government of then Burma had conducted, I think, arguably a more brutal crackdown in Rangoon in 1988. Thousands of people were killed and arrested. And and there were almost no journalists there. And there was certainly no live coverage there. And so it was, you know, a blip on the news barometer. And that's it. But the Chinese really, the Chinese Communist Party really wanted extensive coverage of the Gorbachev trip. It was going to be the crowning diplomatic achievement of Deng Xiaoping's career, having normalized relations with the U.S. Now he was going to put an end to the Sino-Soviet dispute. And they were astonishingly open when I went as CNN bureau chief with a, a producer. And ironically, the the producer who special events team advance group arrived in Beijing the morning after we filed the first report for American television about the protests, which was the Monday, April 17th. We were up all night watching the first group of students who marched from Beijing University into Tiananmen Square. We filmed that. I did a stand-up in which I said, how much longer will the Chinese Communist Party wait to crush this challenge to its authority, which showed I think I was suitably pessimistic about the, the outcome. 
But then I went off to meetings that day with Chinese officials who were very open. They took us to the Beijing Hotel. They went up to the roof of the Beijing Hotel. We looked at, at live shot locations uh, where we could put a satellite dish. In the end, as the, the protests got a little bigger, they, they got cold feet about the Beijing Hotel. So we ended up having to put our satellite transmission uh, satellite dish and transmission facilities in the garden of the Great Wall Sheraton Hotel. But CNN also, Bernard Shaw, the late great CNN anchor, came in, other reporters came in, producers, editors, camera teams. The guy who took the video of the man in front of the tank was not the Beijing-based cameraman, Jonathan Cherry. He was based in Atlanta, and he was just one of the people who came in. So it was absolutely an accident of history, because had these protests not happened when the press was there en masse with the transmission capability, you would have never had the live coverage because in the, the way it used to work was when you did a story normally you would shoot as for television you'd shoot the story on these big clunky three quarter inch videotapes you take it back to your office you use large clumsy editing machines you'd edit a story together then the network would have to book a satellite feed from China Central Television which would cost about two thousand or twenty five hundred dollars. And sometimes if it was a big enough story, the network would share a feed. At CNN was really cheap and they never liked to pay for unilateral feeds. <laughs> and on that first protest, it was just me and Cindy Strand and Mitch Farkas, the camera woman and sound man. I convinced them they, they had to pay for a unilateral feed. And so we went to the CCTV at five o'clock in the morning and sent, sent the story. Um, and that's how you would send a same day video out. And there was no live capability. But because of all this, you know, the satellite dish was three meters high. It was a huge piece yeah. of equipment. Um, and then uh, the the other interesting sort of technical twist is the are the engineers brought in microwave links. And so on the morning of Gorbachev's arrival, we gotten permission to do a live broadcast from the Tiananmen rostra, where Mao proclaimed the establishment of the People's Republic and greeted the Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution. So there I was standing with our colleagues in the camera crew. And we had a we had a microwave link on the rostrum that beamed the signal down Chang'an Street to CCTV, which then beamed it back to the CNN workstation at the Sheraton Hotel, which beamed it up to the satellite, which beamed it down to CNN headquarters, put it out on there. And this all happened instantaneously. Yeah. So when we turned the camera on, what we saw were tens of thousands of protesters in the square where Gorbachev wasn't anywhere to be seen. At the end of that day, we were told you can't go back to the rostrum anymore. And so the question was, how could we keep this live coverage up? And one of the engineers found a location at the northern edge of Tiananmen Square where you had line of sight down Chang'an Street to the CCTV office. And we set the microwave, which is like this pole over the thing on top of it. And we were able to keep the live transmission going. And because the leadership was so divided, and so preoccupied and so kind of unaware of these things, they let this continue until martial law was declared. So there was a whole, and we kept thinking every minute, when are they going to come pull the plug? Yeah. But day after day, night after night, so you had this like five days of extraordinary wall-to-wall -wall live coverage uh, from Tiananmen Square of the protests. And Gorbachev was kind of an afterthought. And then on the Friday night of that week, uh, Lee Pung declared martial law. And on the Saturday morning, in this famous episode, which is recounted in detail by the people who were in there in, in assignment China, 
two Chinese officials marched into the workspace at the CNN at the Great Wall Sheraton and said, you have to stop your live transmissions. And somehow a camera was rigged up. And so this confrontation with these Chinese officials right. is broadcast live. It's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting lesson in how to negotiate with Chinese officials. And for almost an hour, producer Alec Mirren went back and forth and back and forth trying to stall and try. Finally, he said, you know, if you give it to us in writing, we'll do it. And so they, they wrote down on a piece of paper to Gorbachev has left China, you are ordered to stop your transmissions. And then they allowed Bernard Shaw and me and the other two correspondents to say one or two words. And then the screen went black. And after that, we couldn't do any live video broadcast from Beijing. So on the night of the crackdown, for example, I was live on the phone all night, but the videotapes were taken out were by hand to Hong Kong on the first flight on the next morning. And that only then did the videos of the night of June 3rd and 4th actually make it to air. Astonishing. My God. This is sort of an, an amazing illustration of the observer effect, right? I mean, the, this interplay between you know, foreign media coverage and the actual events. Uh, Jim Baker, who was George H.W. Bush's Secretary of State, says uh, that Tiananmen was the first example of the power of the media to drive policy. Uh, I, I've heard it also said before that you know Tiananmen really was what created CNN and what made CNN. I, I think, if I'm not remembering incorrectly, that you had only gone to 24-hour news format not too long before that. Is is that correct? Yeah, CNN started in June of 1980. Uh-huh. And the, I joined the beginning of 83. I was the fourth foreign correspondent hired by CNN. And back then it was kind of a joke to the other networks. They used to call it chicken noodle news. <laughs> and, oh my God. Uh, you know, they had, they had no budget and everybody, everything was, you know, it was just uh, hand, you know, kind of scrounging and, and we sort of the little engine that could quality to, to CNN. And I think Tiananmen was arguably the moment when the world noticed CNN, I, I, I would say, you know, uh, Tiananmen was the overture and the first Gulf War was the full symphony because the oh. first Gulf War with Peter Arnett and other colleagues right. going live from Baghdad and so on, you know, uh, grabbed the world even more profoundly. But CNN, there were that there were whole was was the moment when people kind of woke up and said, whoa look at this little network that we don't know much about. And suddenly they're on the air all the time doing stuff that the big three aren't doing. And uh, uh, much to the resentment of the big three, I must say at the time, which was very satisfying <laughs> from a competitive point of view. But it, it, was the, it, was a, it was the beginning of what people call the CNN effect. Hmm. Uh, where, where, and uh, what I think Baker meant by that, there was a specific incident, which is the was mentioned in assignment china where on the afternoon of saturday june 3rd in washington which is the wee hours of the morning on june 4th in beijing baker had been previously booked to be on a cnn weekend talk show and so he shows up and it's about two o'clock in the morning in beijing and so they begin the broadcast by coming to me and i'm standing on a balcony of the beijing hotel looking down at the square and they say tell us what's going on so i say well I see tracer bullets and there's gunshots and there's an armored vehicle and da 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 da, uh, bodies being brought out on you know on on the back of uh, bicycle carts and stuff. And the Charles Bierbauer, the host, turns to Baker and says, "Mr. Baker, what's the U.S. policy on this?" Wow, wow. And Baker talks in the book when I interviewed him yeah. about. He said, "Oh my God, 
I, I, you know, this was still ongoing. We hadn't, there, there hadn't been time for the report from the embassy, a meeting, a craft of policy. He was having to make up policy in live in real time in response to events being televised live in real time. And now that's just a feature of political life. But this was really the first time it happened. Uh, Twitter has made it worse, hasn't it? Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say. It's it's interesting to imagine what 1989 would have been like had Twitter been around. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Terrifying. Interesting and a little terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) One of the uh, very interesting details uh, in in the book is John Pomfret's comment about how he took uh, the student activist Warakaisi, student leader Warakaisi, out for beef noodles at a nice hotel during the uh, so-called hunger strike um, uh-huh. and, and John Pomfret's decision not to report this at the time. And right. it, it recalled for me a, a story Kaiser told me about how a group of Tibetan monks were in the square on the anniversary of May the 4th and how they got sh- shouted down and had their Tibetan flags uh, taken and trampled by student protesters, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I'm remembering right, Kaiser. And no, an American, right, right. There was an American news crew looking on, I think. There was. And I actually um, turned to them and I said, hey, why aren't you shooting this? And they all kind of looked at me like I was totally naive. So, Mike, you know, wh- wh- how should we look at this? And can you think of other examples where, uh, the you know, events or details don't fit the sort of prevailing, uh, I hate the word narrative, but right. I'm going to use it, uh, yeah. the prevailing Western media narrative where journalists make decisions like that right. because it kind of complicates things in a way yeah. that yeah. makes well, it you know, too the, difficult. I, I mean, I think, you know, overall the portrayal of the journalists in Assignment China is, is, is pretty sympathetic. And I think on balance, most journalists uh, did an honest job. But I think one of the things that comes through is a situation where for a variety of factors, people make decisions in the moment. Pomfret's view was he was a source. He was a very he was one of the central student leaders. He Pomfret obviously had good guanxi and developed a relationship. This guy would tell him stuff that was going on. If you go out and and do a, a story that says, you know, one student leader decided in the middle of the hunger strike to have noodles, a you ruin you you burn your relationship with somebody who was obviously giving him valuable information. And two, um, yes, does it show that not everybody is perfect? And, uh, you know, absolutely. Does it mean that the, I don't, I don't know, I can't speak for John, but, you know, I don't know whether he made these calculations. You know, if you do, if you do this, will this discredit a student movement with whose goals I think most of the journalists at some visceral, you know, at some core level were broadly sympathetic to, as as were many Chinese people, or whether it was just a crude calculation, I need this, this guy's going to help me in so many ways, and what who cares if one guy got a bowl of noodles? I don't know. But people make these trade-offs all the time. It's a messy, you know, it's not black and white. There's always multiple shades of gray. Often the decisions are are not necessarily made out of sort of conscious political calculation. I I I, I wasn't aware of the of the Tibetans on 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 May fourth, um, uh, and I have no idea which crew it would have been. So you know, it's it's conceivable. I think I, I know. I'm just not going to say. But I yeah I, yeah yeah. I, so I, I, so yeah. I mean, sometimes it it 
sometimes it overcomplicates the narrative. Sometimes, or 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 if 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 you know you're only going to get you know two minutes and fifteen seconds to tell the story, um, are you going to devote forty five seconds of that to the fact that a bunch of Han students hassled a bunch of Tibetans when that's not the Baker story? I mean, there are all these calculations, right. and the the main point I would make about them is. It's messy and complicated and human rather than this notion of media bias, because I think. It's, yeah, that it's, makes it's, a lot of sense. I mean, I don't I, I, I can't believe John would have uh, been uh, thinking that I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to lie to the, the, the readers uh, in yeah. order to preserve a certain opinion. Yeah, no, I don't think. I don't think. I mean, I have too much respect for John, but I, you know, it's not an unreasonable calculation. In the heat of the moment, by going to have noodles with this guy, you're developing a special relationship with a source that other journalists would not have, who will tell you chapter and verse on what's going on in the inner councils of the student group driving the whole protests. Uh, is it worth destroying your relationship to tell the world in one line of an 800-word AP story that he had a bowl of noodles? Um, that's probably the the calculation. But people make these trade-offs all the time. And as I said, the 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 one thing I would push back on is there is a, you know, there are a lot of people who criticize the media. And in China, you hear you know, from the government and, and ordinary people that would be, the American media is biased. It says this. And I just think if you, if you look at, particularly at the people in the field reporting, and that's what Assignment China does, this does not, I'm not dealing with the people who wrote the headlines. I'm not dealing with the pundits in Washington pontificating. I'm dealing with people on the ground. Um, and this, the choices people make are not always with the benefit of hindsight and right, and there are lots and are often debatable and so on. Um, but I think one of the values of Simon China is you can sort of get a sense if you put yourself in their shoes. You know, if you had to do this and you were always thinking at the end of the, you know, it's four o'clock in the afternoon and in in 90 minutes, I have to have a script written and narrated in time for the editor to cut a piece, in time to make a seven o'clock feed so it can make the morning news in the States. What are you going to do in that split second moment? And you're doing it. You have, you've slept two hours a night for the last four nights and all your competitors are running around and it's this huge, overwhelming tidal wave of an event which you're struggling to get a handle on. So it's like life. It's messy. And right. in messy situations, stuff happens. But I think it's the stuff happens rather than the conspiracy. It's being ordered. It's conscious political calculation and so on. I, I think that carries much less weight than people realize. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, so many of the talks that I've given over the last six or seven years are sort of themed around this idea that, look, there isn't some nefarious conspiracy you know, to smear China and make it look bad. Uh, it is extremely messy. Most of these journalists all the ones that I know, certainly, they're, they're you know, acting in good faith. They're doing the, their right. job right. in difficult conditions to the best of their abilities. Right. And yet there are structural uh, problems that create, yeah. you know, distortions, right? There are, are things, you know, so, uh, you know, they're accurate and, and, and correct, but that doesn't add up to a realistic picture of what it is yeah. that you're trying to, to describe. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm constantly, you know, enjoining people to, I understand the optical properties of the lens through which so many of us you know, uh -huh. view China. And your book goes so far toward helping people to get an idea of of, of what, what that is. Um, so, you know, Pete Hessler, who is also in your book uh, and in the documentary, he says, I think, some really, really wise things 
Um, he talks about these structural issues all the time. Um, recently, we were, if you're interested in this, I was in, in a conversation with him um, that the ACLS, the American Council of Learned Societies, put on uh, where their president, Joy Connolly, uh, had Peter and I on, on the show uh, to talk about these things. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is that he said he sort of came to an awareness of these structural problems when he encountered Chinese reporting about the United States, which, you know, predictably was about mass incarceration and, and you know, gun violence and stuff like that. All these, you know, highly negative things that, you know, that are real or accurate and yet not fully representative, right? And so he thought, surely the same thing is happening uh, in the way that we write about China. And uh, he, of course, has the luxury of being able to write, you know, thousands of words and, and report over a long period of time. Uh, and he also has both the instincts and the ability to be able to do it. You know, he talks about this in, in the book as well. Um, you know, this, sort of, this sort of longitudinal approach, this sociologist longitudinal approach to look at groups of people over long periods of time and to focus on quite ordinary people. And so he's, you know, an exemplary, but unfortunately not a particularly common type of a reporter. So I I, I wonder if in carrying out this whole project in, in, in undertaking this whole thing, you have some thoughts about how we can come, whether, whether, you know, you've come to understand something about how the, the media lens affects our views of China and what we can do to mm-hmm. give people a better idea of reality in a very complex and quite remote country. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with you about Peter Hessler. I mean, his, his reporting is quite exceptional and it is a sad reflection of the Chinese government's attitude towards the press that even Peter Hessler, who was teaching in China, did not get his visa renewed. Somebody who writes the most and had to leave the country, and and so somebody who who is is as distant, you know, who, who's more able to sort of dig into the complexity and the humanity of Chinese society just because of the, the his background, his experience, the kind of uh, outlet that he's able to write for uh, is no longer afforded that opportunity because the Chinese system today won't allow it. And I think that's a sad commentary on how difficult it's become. I mean, um, just in fairness, he, he talks about this quite a bit. You know, he's uh, talked about it on our show before. Yeah. Uh, he did understand that he was there um, and that he, writing, reporting was going to, you know, be in violation of the agreement. Right, right, right. right. But that's a dumb agreement, Kaiser. I mean, that's an unreasonable agreement from a, a repressive government. Well, I mean, he was a, a professor, right? Yeah. He didn't have a press credential. Right, right. No, right, f- so. f- fair enough. But I say it's, it's th- th- that the Chinese system could not uh, see a, a, see ha- a way. I mean, there are plenty of people who've written the odd thing on a non-journalist visa. Sure, no, I, uh, I agree. Yeah. And, and here's somebody whose work carries a great deal of weight, who is fundamentally, you know, sympathetically disposed to ordinary Chinese people, who sees multiple shades of gray rather and, and nuance rather than black and white, and the Chinese system couldn't find it within itself to enable him to stay on in China, knowing you know, for whatever combination of reasons. I just think it's a reflection of, of, of the rigidity of the Chinese system um, and, 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 and a way in which, in a sort of self-defeating way, I think uh, the, the Chinese system uh, operates. And, and, and I think, more, you know, more generally, one of the consequences of the large-scale expulsions and the dramatic shrinking of the American press corps is that uh, most news organizations have a 
much smaller number of people. I think the New York Times yeah. is two people now. You're trapped in a daily dot. You know, you can't not cover the 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 everyday wolf warrior fulminations from the foreign ministry press briefing and the you know what the Chinese are saying about Ukraine or Taiwan or whatever. That can take up all your time. Yeah. So yeah. so as and so 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 what so one result of that is the pressures to cover that kind of stuff and the 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 shrinking number of people mean that. Uh, it's really not possible for a reporter to sort of go off to a farm in Hubei for 10 days and then come back with three really well-reported, well-crafted pieces about what life is like in the countryside. Exactly. And This is exactly what I mean when I say it's a structural issue. Yeah. It, and, and I think that, and, and, and so, you know, the Chinese government complains about journalists, you know, don't tell the story fairly, but they create conditions in which just by the nature of the beast, in a sense, the journal, the, the smaller number of journalists are locked into doing this kind of daily diet and getting, I mean, the stuff that I always liked most in China was getting out of Beijing and sort of just soaking up what the rest of China was like. And it's extremely hard to do now, even, and even if you can do it, the, the prevailing attitude about the press uh, is that local officials will more often than not be obstructive. Right. And, and local people having absorbed the diet for several years in the official state media of journalists or spies, don't trust them, they're bad guys, are going to be openly hostile more often than not anyway. So the note, in, in, in Assignment China, there's a wonderful story. Kathy Chen of the Wall Street Journal in the early 90s wanted to do a piece about the uh, migration of people from the countryside to the work in the factories and the joint venture factories in the coast. Right. And she got the foreign affairs office of Sichuan province to help her find a village where a bunch of young girls were going to go to Dongguan, I think, to start work in a, in a Mattel doll factory. And <laughs> Kathy got on a bus with them and spent five days, and then none of these girls had ever left their village. And she rode on this bus, and, and then because she looked local, she was actually able to get into the factory and look around and get into their dormitory. She wrote an absolutely wonderful piece that, that humanized this instead of, you know, millions of people moving. It's like these five girls from this village and you get a sense of who they are and what their fears were, what their hopes were, what the experience was. Um, it would be next to impossible to do that today. You'd be very hard pressed to find a foreign affairs office anywhere who felt there was any political advantage in being seen to help an American journalist. And you'd probably find very few people who would be willing to allow themselves to be reported in that way. So the net effect of this is that it adds to uh, an increasingly one-dimensional picture of yeah, China. Absolutely. And the coverage is driven by Sino-American tensions, the trade disputes, Chinese policy towards Ukraine, uh, Taiwan issues, all of which are absolutely valid and need to be covered. But there's no, it's not balanced in any way by by reporting getting at the kind of texture of Chinese society and uh, I think news consumers lose journalists lose and China loses because it further accentuates this one-dimensional portrayal because people can't get at what would make it multi-dimensional because the Chinese government doesn't allow enough of them there and the working conditions on the ground, make it difficult. And in terms yeah. of the what can we do, the only thing I would say is 
the more people can become sophisticated consumers of news, the more they understand the process, the better they can judge for themselves what it is they're watching or reading or listening to. And my hope is that a Simon China will make a contribution there because I think uh, somebody who reads a Simon China will come away with a better appreciation of what goes into being a foreign correspondent in China, what the experience is like, what people think about, how they do their jobs, so that when you watch the news or read an article, you'll be able to do things like, oh, what was the lead? What quotes did they use? Where's the byline? Is it from, from China or is it from outside, inside China or outside China? Who are the experts they cited? You know, Where does the data come from? I mean, essentially, if people want to get beyond just absorbing and emotionally reacting to what is in the news, they have to kind of proactively get a better understanding of news. And this doesn't mean saying, you know, buying into conspiracy theories or any of that nonsense. It just means- Acquiring media literacy. Yeah. Yeah. Media literacy, I think, is 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 one of the few things that that is in everyone's power to do if they are willing to make a little bit of an effort to do it. Unfortunately, they're reading Elon Musk on Twitter. But I, I, on a related question is uh, where the reporters are actually uh, can determine what the story is to some extent. You know, the, the Tiananmen, uh, CNN being at Tiananmen in 1989 was one example. And not being in Chengdu, for instance, which also had protests that got zero coverage right, at the time. Exactly. And so nobody even thinks of Chengdu when they think of 1989. Right. Um, right now at the China Project, we're publishing some of our best stories uh, out of Taiwan uh, because our freelancers and reporters can work there unimpeded right. and they actually have access to friendly government officials. And they're also, we just published a story on a bunch of Taiwanese bands that sing in Hokkien and have very sort of pro-independence uh, views. Um, and uh, there are more people writing those kind of stories than writing mm. You know similar stories about bands in China uh, right now. Right. You yourself are in Taipei, and many of the excellent journalists who once covered China, having been um, unceremoniously booted out, uh, are are now also in Taiwan. So, how are you seeing this change the the coverage of China? And uh, do you think that the um, the number, the just the sheer number of reporters of American reporters in Taiwan? has anything to do with the increased interest in Taiwan uh, in, among the American political and chattering classes? Well, there are two sort of separate issues. Why One is China coverage and one is Taiwan coverage. Taiwan has become one of, but by no means the only sort of place that people uh, who, can't, who want to cover China but can't get into China or get back into China um, are, are going. Uh, there's Taipei, uh, right. there's Seoul which is where a number of major media organizations have relocated regional headquarters that used to be in Hong Kong, most notably the New York Times and the Washington Post also, um, and Washington as well, and, and uh, uh, North Carolina and Nashville. Uh, as, uh, <laughs> of course. Um, Hong Kong to some extent, but Hong Kong is problematic, uh, even though there are lots of journalists there because of this national security law, which can be interpreted however the authorities want to interpret it. And while they haven't gone after any international journalists yet, they've certainly emasculated the once free Hong Kong press. And I think one thing I do hear from journalist friends is that uh, people in Hong Kong are, are very reluctant to talk to journalists because they might get into trouble. So Hong Kong, even though it's got lots of information and there's a lot more back and forth 
across the border to the mainland than from Taiwan, although there's still a good bit from Taiwan, has, is kind of a pale shadow of what it used to be in terms of the center of China watching. Um, but the problem is that in all these places, you're not on the ground in China. So to some extent, people are doing the same thing, which is they're reading, they're trolling the Chinese internet, um, you know, they're, they're looking at the official media, you know, they're talking to whoever they can in China, who they're able to, you know, people who have been there before have friends and contacts can have some contact with them, but, but it's fraught and the surveillance state apparatus in China means that it'd be very tricky to have a, 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 an open, you know, a, a frank phone conversation on a, on a sensitive issue with somebody in China because someone else will be uh, listening. Um, Taiwan is obviously, you know, ethnically, it's a very Chinese society. People speak Chinese. There's a or, or orientation towards the mainland, although there isn't, there, there are not, you know, sort of that many obvious go-to Taiwan-based China experts who really have a great handle on China, but it's a natural kind of place if you want to be in a sort of Chinese environment, cultural environment, linguistic environment where people are oriented uh, towards China. But you know, what, there's a whole industry in Washington of people following China. Um, but there's not being on the ground just fundamentally changes it, and I worry that we're missing all sorts of important trends percolating through Chinese society that may or may not have a important broader impact on the direction China goes or in Chinese politics that we simply don't know yeah. about. It's too big a country and there are too few people there. So who the hell knows what's going on in, you know, in, in, in uh, Ningxia or, or Anhui or whatever. Uh, it was hard enough before. It's next to impossible now. What we've been trying to do, of course, is, you know, using social media as some kind of a proxy for it, and it doesn't always capture everything. Uh, I mean, we talked about quite a bit about, you know, how technology has changed uh, and, and changed coverage of China. Uh, this is a, a conversation that Jeremy and I had with Ian Johnson mm -hmm. uh, in a live show we did in New York. We talked about social media, um, the heavy reliance on that. Um, but, you know, aside from social media, there's also, you know, all this satellite imagery that we're using right. to report and, you know, data. Right. Um, there's different reporting methodologies that are being developed for better and for worse. You know, what have we lost and what have we gained as we increasingly rely on this stuff uh, rather than, you know, as you say, just being on the ground and, and, and soaking it in and talking to people face to face? Well, I mean, to me, being there is the essential foundation of journalism. And so if you're not yeah. there, you lose something really crucial, um, which is the ability of a experienced, competent, responsible reporter to see what they can see themselves and talk to people and smell it and touch it and feel it. And you can't replace that by looking at a satellite image or reading the People's Daily online or somebody's, you know, Weibo or WeChat moments or whatever. So we're losing something really, really important. Unlike in the days of Father Ladani, when he just literally read the Chinese press and read transcripts of Chinese radio broadcasts, uh, the internet does provide all kinds of amazing stuff because it's it's not it's not just you know the online versions of the the People's Daily, but you know police departments put out on the internet you know procurement bids for equipment, you know, and and if you know where to look, you can learn that such and such a police department want is bidding for somebody to 
build the poles on which to mount surveillance cameras, which tells you something about what's going on in that in in that city. The satellite imagery is really important. I mean, it was crucial in in the the Xinjiang story. I mean, people used satellite. I mean, Mega Rajagopal and the BuzzFeed won a Pulitzer Prize for using sure. satellite I- imagery uh, to identify. Uh, the camps. People have used satellite imagery to show large numbers of cars outside crematoriums near Beijing at the end of December that weren't there at the beginning of December, which was a very dramatic illustration of the, the death toll caused by the end of zero COVID. There's another great example, which I've been using in a lot of the talks I've been giving. The New York Times, they went on, they found, they went on the they found obituaries on the websites of the Chinese Academy of Sciences and one other sort of science and technology website. Um, and they just counted up how many every month since 2019. And it was like usually three or four a month. And then starting in December, it was like dozens. And so it's enough. Right. Um, but that's different than, you know, going to the hospital, talking to the family, um, uh, driving out to the crematorium yourself and interviewing people purses showing up and stuff like that so so you just you just lose that and i think what we lose in that as i said is this sort of sense of china as a living breathing society of real people with real feelings and real issues and hopes and dreams and challenges and so on um and it just feeds this one-dimensional picture that i think unfortunately given the direction of the relationship between u.s and china and, and it's not in any way to minimize the issues, which are huge and real and need to be covered. But you don't get a sense of the broader dynamics in the society in the way that I think is really important to understand the place. Absolutely. So well said. And you don't get a sense of who is going to hurt when we start bombing uh, is perhaps uh, the worst possible outcome. Um, on that uh, rather grim note, let me ask the last question, <laughs> because we could talk to you for hours, Mike, but our listeners probably have lives too. So, Oh, come on. They don't. Right. Yes. <laughs> you can cut this easily into a 30-second sound <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what has gone wrong with TV news in recent years? And <laughs> not just talking about China. And I, I'm asking this question based partly on our conversation in Nashville a few weeks right. ago. Right. right. Uh, well, you, you probably need another couple of hours just to discuss that. Um, Go. <laughs> I think what's, 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 what's happened, I mean, there are lots of different factors here. One is that this, what, what is considered fashionable in, in TV news ha- has shifted very much. In the early days at CNN, for example, most of the work involved going out with a camera crew, shooting video, and then writing and editing a carefully crafted package. And and then the, the anchor would say, you know, here's Mike Chino in Southern China with a story on X. Um, but as the, as the technology has made it possible to go live, the focus has increasingly shifted towards live and sometimes just live for live's sake. So, and this is not just an observation related to CNN, it's across the board at, at all the big networks, that given a choice between a reporter live shot at location X or a carefully reported, beautifully written, well-edited package, more often than not, the live shot takes precedence over the package, which to me is kind of a waste of the medium. The live shot is good to show you're on the scene, but you get situations, particularly with the all news networks, it's not just CNN, 
where hour after hour it's live. And sometimes reporters complain they're kind of they're prisoners of live. They can't go out and actually do any journalism because they got to just do live shots. So that's one uh, trend that, that, that I think we're seeing. Another trend is that the reporter is more part of the story. And that you, particularly in television, you see, you know, in, in you you see, the reporters in a lot more shots. Uh, the reporters' experiences slash adventures. Sometimes it's part of the story, but maybe I'm old fashioned because I started out at CBS News in the heyday of Walter Cronkite in the mid 1970s. But mm. I always felt that the reporter's job is to tell the viewer what they have seen and share using the camera what they've seen and offer some insights and context and that the, the goal of a stand-up, on-camera stand-up, was to show you were there and or to uh, talk about something for which you didn't have video. But you look at the way TV packages are constructed, the report often you see the reporter in, in multiple shots and, and the story doesn't become Israel invades southern Lebanon. It is famous reporter X is in northern Israel, and 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 it's marketed right. that way. So again, you know, at CNN in the early days, the jo- the the line was, "We don't have any stars. The news is the star," and that's completely changed. And that's partly the economics of you know the the fight for ratings, um, and 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 then of course Fox News came in and uh, has politicized the television because. Uh, mere, by d- defining itself the way in which they did, merely to not be Fox News pegged you as a certain political category, no matter how hard news organizations tried not to be. Just by not being Fox, you were automatically distinct from Fox and therefore on the other side of the political spectrum. And then the dramatic changes in the news business where people don't watch cable TV anymore. Everything is done online. There's this constant pressure for ratings. TV organizations are part of parent companies that are looking at the bottom line. So there's tremendous tumult and pressure and shifting values. So I often find on TV that I don't see nearly as much of what I most liked TV for, which was a great reporter goes to an interesting, important place with an excellent cameraman who takes beautiful images, which are edited together with a script that done right is almost like poetry and leaves you powerfully moved by what you've seen. And you can't uh-huh. do that if it's just live shot after live shot after live shot by celebrity correspondent by celebrity correspondent by celebrity correspondent. Uh, so I find that troubling, frankly. Oh, boy. My God. Let's bring that back. I mean, I would love to see those the return of the package. There was a well, there was a thing. great I have there was a, the, the, the there was a guy named Richard Blystone who was a great mm-hmm, great mm-hmm. correspondent for CNN who died a few years ago. Dick Blystone. Um, I remember. And him. when he died, my my old friend and longtime colleague Christian Amanpour described him as the poet laureate television news because he could write his stories were like poetry and you just don't find people like that anymore. Bob Simon, late Bob Simon of CBS was someone, the same, same kind of person. Go, go, if you can find packages online of Richard Blystone or Bob Simon, you'll see what I mean by beautifully written, beautifully shot television at its finest. And we don't see as much of that anymore, which I think is unfortunate for journalists and unfortunate for consumers of news who are missing something very valuable. 
And poets have been replaced by models. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, Christian Amanpour may be not the best person to invoke when we're railing against the cult of the celebrity journalist. Although, I, in fairness to Christian, yes, she's a big, big celebrity, but she really earned her spurs and she in in in, no, she in the yeah. trenches, and she is a very serious journalist who it happens to exist in that world. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, the book is called Assignment China, an oral history of American journalists in the People's Republic, and it is just a phenomenal document uh, that I think anyone who is interested in in contemporary China uh, would would do very, very well to read. Uh, please watch the documentary series, too, because one of the things that you really do get in that is the body language of, of, of these correspondents. It, it just doesn't show up necessarily on the written page, but this it's just fantastic. Uh, so congratulations on that, Mike. Uh, it's just such a great contribution to the field. Great. Thanks. Well, thanks so much, and thanks for having me. It's great to uh, have this. Yeah, well, don't go away yet. We still have recommendations to do. <laughs> uh, oh, you wanted a recommendation. <laughs> yeah, let me, let's me. let get to that section. Okay, all right. Well, my right, I'm, I'm moving away from China. There is a wonderful book. Uh, it, it, it's called Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen in the Sinai. And it's Ooh. written by a British, an Israeli... Uh, author named Maddie Friedman, and it documents the largely unknown presence of the great singer Leonard Cohen, who everybody knows from, even young people know his song Hallelujah, but for those of us of a certain age, he was part of our growing up. In the 1973 Yom Kippur War in Israel, when when Israel was uh, attacked by uh, Egypt and Syria and almost lost, the darkest days of Israel's history. Right. Leonard Cohen, who was uh, sitting, living on an island in the uh, off Greece, took himself without his guitar to Israel for. Uh, he was kind of having a kind of a identity crisis, a musical, a creative crisis, and he he fell in with a group of Israeli musicians who were going to the front lines to sing for the troops. Wow. And this book documents uh, no publicity, no cameras along. It was just him. And, and and somebody lent him a guitar. And it is a beautifully written meditation on music, culture, war, Israel, Judaism. It's an absolutely wonderful book called A Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen in the Sinai. I can't recommend it highly enough. Oh, fantastic. That sounds great. It's a I great book. I would love book. to read that. Oh, great recommendation. Jeremy, you got your, your place user up. You usually go first, but let's go. All right. I want to quickly... Uh point to the Ultimate China Bookshelf by Paul French, uh, and uh, it's a weekly column. And our latest, uh, his latest piece is uh, relevant to our discussion today. It's about Jack Belden's coverage of the Chinese Civil War, uh, which Paul says offers enduring lessons in China reporting. Um, But my main recommendation sticks with the Jewish theme. It's uh, a book called From the Jewish Provinces, Selected Stories of Early of uh, the early 20th century modernist Yiddish language writer, uh, Fradl Stock, uh, translated by Jordan uh, Finken and a friend of mine here in Nashville, Alison Schachter. It's a really wonderful little volume of stories from a writer who has almost been forgotten, very sadly. Fantastic. I, I'm going to uh, go from, from Jews to Jesuits. Um, I'm going to, well, first, quickly, we, we mentioned um, Father Laszlo Ladani, uh, the Hungarian Jesuit. I was just intrigued and went, kind of went down a rabbit hole and started reading about him. Uh, and I came across a list, I think it was just on the Wikipedia article about him, of sort of, of 
uh, 10 uh, maxims, I guess, that, that he, he suggests. He wrote this in 1982 uh, about how to cover China. Look that up. Check it out. It's it's pretty amazing. These are so in, incredibly relevant today for anybody who's interested in writing about or thinking about or talking about China. And the other recommendation I have is just the, all the fun I've been having with ChatGPT4. We have experienced a step change. Just play with ChatGPT4. Spend the money. Spend the 20 bucks to get the, you know, to upgrade. It's just mind-blowing. So anyway. Thank you so much, Mike. That was just fantastic. Uh, really enjoyable to talk to you. And, and congrats once again on the, on the fantastic book. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thanks so much. Jeremy, good to see you, man. Likewise. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at The China Project. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.